and I believe God's got a great word for us today um, as this is the third and final installment of our vision um, series for our 2020 um, church year that we have ahead of us. Um, we've spent the last couple of weeks, and we'll spend one last service, um, talking about what God is up to in our midst and the vision that I believe He is laying on our hearts. He's laid it on my heart um, so powerfully, so clearly, and I believe through the last few um, services um, He has shared that with every one of you. Um, so if you've got a Bible, first off, we're going to read from Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 through 17. Uh, we'll go ahead and read the text. I believe it really sets an awesome tone for us. As today's uh, topic and today's text and today's part of the vision brings things a little more personal, a little more inward, a little more focused, um, we'll um, spend a minute or two looking back at how we got here um, because I feel like this is um, being the last part of a three-part um, sort of uh, series. It's important to talk about what we've uh, talked about so far because this vision is, 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 has a few pillars to it. Um, and it's important that we kind of wrap it up and, and connect all the dots. So Ephesians 5, verse 1 through 17. Therefore, be imitators of God as dear children, and walk in love as Christ also has, walk, has loved us and given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. But fornication and all uncleanness, all covetousness, let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, Neither filthiness, nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know, that no fornicator, unclean person, nor covetous man who is an adulterer has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord." Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them, or shine into them. For it is shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. For whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore he says, Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Again, I've spent the last two weeks sharing my vision with you of what a successful, more importantly, what an obedient 2020 can look like for us. And God has really steered me in a direction um, with an emphasis on a single word. By now you should know the word. It's for. For, as in God, be, as, as the idea of being pro something, as being for something, advocating for, championing for, um, supporting, rallying behind. We spent the first two weeks of this vision casting, talking about what it looks like for us as a church, for us as people, to be for Lincoln and to be for Risen because we've concluded that God is for Lincoln and that God is for Risen. God is for the community around us and God is for the community within us that we as a church have been placed strategically and specifically in the town, in the city, in the community that we are in. And, and, and the for Lincoln installment was all about our presentation that to be the most for Lincoln as we can be, we've got to present who we are and, and do it with clarity 
and with boldness and, and the presentation that we have for the world, for our community, it is the good news, right? It, it's the best news, the greatest news. The world needs to hear the good news, right? And our job as a church, our job as, as, a, as a body of believers is to present this good news to as many people as possible. And of course, the good news is that God is for, not against, God is for us. God is for the church. God is for the world, right? God is for people. And He taught us, and He teaches us, and we've learned that to be God-focused, the church should be people-focused, as in loving, reaching, engaging with everyone for His sake. So we are pro-people because God is pro-people. We are for people because God is for people. And God was so for people that He sent Jesus to become a person to die for all people. So it's not hard to see where we get this idea from and get this vision from. So the story, from cover to cover, the Bible is a, a story about God making people and watching them rebel against Him, watching them spiral out of the control, build kingdoms in their own names, create idols in their own image, and yet God's response was not one of anger or wrath. It was one of focus and determination and love to redeem those that were fallen. He started with his own nation, and by that nation, he revealed himself to the whole world. And through that nation, he sent a Savior to the whole world to put on display how he was and always would be for the world. And that can be a summary of the entire Bible that would help us all understand what God's will always has been. He started with the church to spread this for message with the whole world. And sometimes the church gets crossed up. We think our goal is to be against this and against that, and we get so bogged down fighting battles that we should nowise enter into. We think our job is to distance ourselves from the world or wall off the world or wall out the world, but our job is to create a refuge and a rest for the world. Our job is to truly be a sanctuary for all people, and sanctuaries by design are for people. In the Scriptures, sanctuaries are where God meets with weary, wandering people, not just those that are buttoned up and with their lives together. So my prayer and my devotion has been and will always be that we would be a refuge in a sanctuary that is for everyone. So we decided that there are three pillars to this vision. And we spent two weeks talking about the first two, but this for everyone vision is about pre presentation, participation, and for importance of today, demonstration. Now, realizing our vision for everyone has everything to do with how we present, how we include, and how we model our faith. Present or pre Presentation uh, means the gospel that we've been given, we've got to make sure that we have nothing in the way between us and those that need to hear. Including, embracing this idea of participation that we are all finding our place and taking advantage of the place that God has put us in and the job He's called us to do in this church. Now, regarding presentation, we discussed how everything should communicate the gospel. Everything should communicate the good news. The standard we measure everything and every volunteer and every person up against is does this communicate the gospel in a way that those who need to hear, those who have never heard, can understand? That's the standard that we measure everything that we do by. Does this present the gospel in a clear, cohesive way that anybody that has never heard before, they can hear it and they can get it? And here's a, 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 little, a little hint. If a translator is required, the method is tired and needs to be retired. 
Now, I don't mean translation from languages. I mean, listen, if this is so far into outsiders, if it's so far into visitors, if it's so far into unchurched people, right? Listen, this is where I set myself apart from many traditions. It's where I don't always agree with those in our own denomination. My job is to make sure that God is not paywalled off to anybody, that God is presentable, that God is clear, and there should be no culture, no tradition, no era, no style that God is stuck behind. God is for everybody, and I've got to make sure he gets in front of as many people as possible. We have to decide to do what we must do to be this church that presents the gospel. We are not a club, but we are a church. A church is for everyone, and we will be for everyone. Now, we have a responsibility to communicate the gospel in a way that facilitates contemporary, as in people that are alive right now, contemporary ears to hear and understand. That's why we sing what we sing. That's why we preach what we preach. That's why we do what we do. To send a message to those in our current generation, this isn't about catching up with culture. It's about transforming culture. And that's why people in my positions must be self-aware and must continually guard themselves from self-service. This is not about what I like or what I prefer, or what I'm comfortable doing. I've challenged myself, and I've changed the way I thought I need to change to be able to make sure that nothing is in the way. The call to ministers and those in leadership, those who are called to serve, is to deny themselves, as in think of those who are not in your shoes, who have never seen through your eyes. This song's not about me. It's about Jesus, and Jesus is all about reaching and seeking and saving those who are far away, those who are lost, those who have never heard, and those who have not yet understood. That's what drives me. That's why I do what I do, and that's why I don't mind having conversations with Christians who say, why do we do this? Why do we sing that? Why do you preach that instead of this? Because my job is to wire us and steer us in a direction that is for, not against, a direction that looks for and searches for, welcomes and embraces everybody. And if you read the Bible, Old and New Testament, that is God's heartbeat on every page. To make sure that our church communicates that no one is too far away from God and that God is closer than you might think. And there's pillar number two, which was about participation. The church should naturally funnel each one of us into a whole. And and, and let me say this, for this reason, this isn't and just can't be my vision. This has to be our vision. I say our vision because I might be the one talking, but I'm not the only one walking in and walking out of here week after week. And I relay to you what God has given me, what my responsibility is as a pastor to seek after. This isn't or hasn't been about enhancing my agenda or increasing my voice or authority. We've discussed these things. I've sat down with our elders, our deacons, our leaders. I've sat down with many of you individually and privately shared these things with you for years. And this is what drives our initiatives. But we seek only to polish and refine and double down on it as we move forward. So this isn't just about three sermons that connect and flow together. This is about who we are, who we want to be, and even more. This is about the badge and identity of Risen that we all wear. And that's what we discussed last week, that as a part of this church, it's not wrong to say that I am Risen, that we are risen, that we are not just in the house, we are the body of Christ, right? We're not just a part of the church, we are the church. 1 Corinthians 12 taught us last week, for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body through though many are one body, so it is with Christ, that we are body parts, right? 
Verse 13 says, For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews, Greeks, slaves, or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. So we must all have the same unified vision as to what we are called to do. We are body parts and we are most fulfilled when we function for each other. And while we focused last time on how we function for each other and in and around each other in the body, worshiping, serving, giving, contributing, joining, coming together, I am risen and we are risen, is not confined to 571 Salem Road. It is not confined to Sundays or Wednesdays, fellowships and functions on this property. Church membership and church partnership, church participation and gospel presentation, if it's really going to make a difference and impact the world, it can't just be about what we do here. It's got to be more than that. And that's why the third part of our vision, the third pillar of our vision is about demonstration. How we model our faith, how we demonstrate the will of God, how we exemplify what it means to be a child of God with a heart after God's will. So what does it mean to, be, uh, to model our faith? What does it mean to, be, to demonstrate our faith? Well, it means that Christianity has called us to be whole and holy. And as followers of Jesus, our goalpost has changed, our drive has changed, our passion and our purpose has changed. And it shouldn't be controversial to say this, though for some reason it is. But the reality is, if we are saved, to be saved means to be devoted. It's more than just being different or changed. If we're saved by Jesus, we will be devoted to Jesus. That salvation and devotion should not be separate ideas. That if we are saved... There should be an inseparable link between being devoted to Jesus, as in living out our faith every single day, wherever we are, whatever we might find ourselves doing. Now, the reason why it sometimes becomes controversial is because there seems to be a wedge driven between accepting Jesus and living for Jesus. There seems to be often duplicity between someone who says they are saved, but their devotion to the one that saved them. And it's not just our generation. The writers of the New Testament had to write often to churches who were struggling with this. It's why Jesus' brother James would go on to say, For as the body apart from the Spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Now there's a reason for this. There's a reason why James had to write these things. If there wasn't a reason, i got to say... It shouldn't be controversial to suggest that anyone who says Jesus saved me should also pay attention to everything that Jesus and his followers said, right? That if we say, Jesus, I want you to save me, we should pay attention to what Jesus says and we should imitate who Jesus was and what Jesus did. We can't say, Jesus, save me and say no thanks to the rest. And you think, well, who would do that? Well, that's why Ephesians was written. That's why half the New Testament was written. Because people depended on Jesus to save their souls, but they weren't living for him every single day. And Paul's plea to us in verse 1 of chapter 5 is that we would be imitators, that we would mimic, we would be like God. Be imitators of God as his children walking in his footsteps, walking in the steps of Jesus. Now, I'll go ahead and address this, and, and this might be where many take an exit, but God wants us to get this, so we've got to talk about it. As to so, why so many resist, we can blame culture, we can blame country, we can blame, our, blame the times that we live in, but the reality is that some of us aren't interested in this, and there are plenty of groups that may never address this, but I love you too much to be dishonest with you. If we're truly going to fulfill our destiny as a Christian, 
as a follower of Christ, if we are going to be rooted and grounded in His church and truly going to realize our place as church members, we'll realize that we represent our church wherever we go, whatever we do, every single day. See, Paul wanted the Ephesians to walk worthy of their calling. If you read the whole book, you read back in chapter 4 that Paul says that they should walk worthy of their in Christ identity. He also tells them that they should consider that everywhere they go, they are in heavenly places, as in they are walking on holy ground wherever they are, whatever they do, that you're never separated from your faith, you're never separated from your identity, that you carry that with you. You don't leave it at the door. You don't check it in or check out. You always have that with you. So broadly speaking, we represent Jesus and the kingdom of heaven always. We represent one another in risen always. Now let me say this. this. The people that push back against this usually have one or two reasons. Maybe your faith, maybe your faith and realizing your faith and living for your faith is difficult. And maybe it's all you can do to get here. And I, I hear you. The reality is your spouse doesn't support you, your significant other doesn't support you, your family isn't supportive, your faith, your friends aren't supportive, your workplace is hostile to your faith. I don't know what category you might be in, but I'm sure somebody can identify with that, that being a Christian is not easy. And coming to this place is not easy, let alone being who you need to be where you are in the world most of the time. Society and culture are leading us the other way. But listen, that, that, that's not to condemn anybody. It's to encourage every single one of you that show that you are on the edge of the greatest movement in the universe that has stood the test of time and will never be defeated. I want to encourage you, if home is rough, if work is rough, if culture gives you a hard time, don't give up. What brings you back here is the love of God, His love for you, and God's purpose for you. This irresistible invitation to live for a means to an end that's greater than me and that will never end. So don't give up just because the world doesn't give you an easy time. But secondly, though, the reality is that some people have fallen for the lie that Christianity is some cultural, passive, casual thing. And it's not. And it can't be. Why else would Jesus say radical, crazy things like this? where he told his disciples that whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Who do you think you are, Jesus? Why would he say that unless it's true? And unless there there really isn't life apart from him. Why would he say things like this? I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, as in unless you consume me and feed off of me and double down on me and only me, unless you devote yourself to me and focus on me and pray to me and study after me and follow after me, why would he say that stuff if it wasn't crucial? If he was not fighting for you because he knows the world is fighting for you as well. Now, if that rattles us, it does me. (laughs) It's a good thing because God is trying to get our attention and say it's worth it. Listen, the reality of living in our world, we've got so much stuff pulling at us, so many options and pathways to take. But if you're saved, if you're a Christian, you've been aligned with the kingdom that is not of this world. Our Messiah was killed because he was considered too dangerous to be alive. Sometimes the call to follow Jesus seems to be in contrast with our flesh and our world. But remember, God's call is always of light. And it's always about making things more clear. Maybe it's good that we have these conversations that cause us to consider our calling, to consider the opportunity. 
If salvation really has opened us up to a more fulfilling, satisfying way of life, if we are now a part of the kingdom of heaven and our local church membership matters more than we could ever imagine, we don't want to waste the day. God's goal within us is to work His saving power and to display His power as we have been redeemed, inviting others and giving them a model to follow. And that's what makes it even more tragic that some check out at this because when we check out, we lose the world as well. What do you think the world thinks when they see Christians that aren't devoted? I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad. I'm just trying to be honest. What do you think the world thinks when they see Christians that are passive? Yeah, they pack houses up full on Sundays, but they don't really live like they actually follow that Jesus guy who said radical, crazy things about loving and giving and serving. What do you think the world thinks whenever we make a big deal about Jesus, our all in all, our living hope, our Lord of all? What do you think the world thinks when they see us gather in buildings like this, but they never hear from us any other time? And when they do hear from us, we really don't look any different than them. I don't know about you, but maybe the world would have something to say like this. Why do you make such a big deal about Jesus saving you, but then continue to act like the rest of us? Hello? I mean, you talk about Jesus and about this and that, you then act like us, you talk like us, and you walk like us, and you think you're making the world a better place and demonstrating how to overcome and rise above the stuff that drags the rest of us down. But now, y'all don't seem to have anything that we don't have. See, the truth is, church, we do have something. We do have someone. Right? We have access to presence and power that can help us overcome and rise above all the drama and all the stress and all the anxiety and all the regret the world has been bogged down by. We can make a difference, right? And rise above the competition the world runs by and the shame the world gets covered in. The war so many people get caught up in and get defeated by. We can set a different path and set a different standard. And while the world turns to X, Y, and Z for relief, we ought not to be following suit, but rather demonstrating that there is a better way. Listen to how Paul addresses the believers in verses 3 through 14. Notice in verse 3 through 7, he contrasts their former way of life. He talked about things that they had struggled with previously before their conversion. And notice how he puts it in verse 8 through 14. For you were once in darkness, but now you are in the light of the Lord. So walk as children of the light with goodness and righteousness and truth, finding out or showing what is the acceptable thing to the Lord. He says, have no fellowship or don't do the things that you were saved out of. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them as in show them the better way. It doesn't mean point the finger. It means, hey, here's what light has given us. Here's what hope has given us. Here's what faith has given us. For it is shameful even to speak of those things that are done by them in secret, but all things that are exposed are made manifest by the light. And he says to you and me, Awake, you who sleep. Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. It's all about bringing the light of the gospel to a world that is in darkness. God's intentions for our demonstration and modeling our faith is to set an example and provide an example for others to follow suit. The world desperately needs, let's go to the next, the world desperately needs to see authentic lovers of God 
and devoted followers of God. The world desperately needs this. Again, we don't have to stagger around addled and burdened like the world as if we have no spirit or savior. God has placed this mantle on us to demonstrate to the world what it means to have found true life and true joy and true purpose in Christ. Again, this text begins by telling us to mimic God. Paul goes on to use the word walk three times in this text. And walk does not just mean take a stroll, but it means to conduct our life in a very specific way. We are to conduct our lives as imitators of God so that others might imitate us. So that if someone else doesn't know about our faith, they can deduce from our walk, they've got something figured out and I want to know more about it. But here's the thing, at the core of this text, Paul is fundamentally shifting the way we conduct our lives and walk as believers. Paul adopts a new approach here as well, and, and, and it's a big deal because Paul was esteemed in Jewish scriptures. Paul was a scholar in the Old Testament. He knew all the commandments, and he actually encourages us, now listen closely, he actually encourages us to begin making decisions with a different approach than just, here's what's right, and here's what's wrong, so I'm just going to try to do what's right. Now, not only is this approach better for you, but it will be a better way of communicating and demonstrating your faith to those who have no idea what you believe and can only see how you behave. Paul shifts the approach in verse 15 when he says, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Notice he doesn't use the language not as wrong, but as right. He uses these words wise and unwise. And it may just be semantics, but I think there's more to it. Verse 16, he says, hey, this is about making the best use of our time as believers to be what verses 9 and 13 said, to be lights in our world. And he encourages us in verse 17 to not be foolish in our approach, in our method of demonstrating our faith, but truly understand what God's will is. Now, here's how I think Paul is saying we can become foolish and can almost ridicule our faith and actually hurt our testimonies as believers and honestly not grow and better ourselves. So often we Christians become obsessed with asking a very specific question. Is there anything wrong with blank? Should I be against this? Have you ever asked that question? I'm not telling you that you were wrong when you asked that question. Maybe you were. Maybe you'll find out that you were. But I want to just talk about this question that we often ask. Really, this is another question in disguise. And I think it really exposes and reflects a very shallow love and devotion that we may have going on. Because when we ask the question, is there anything wrong with this? Or should I be against this? Really, most of the time, what we're really asking is, how close can I get to sin without actually sinning? Because we all know there's a line, right? And we want to see how close we can get. And, well, if there's nothing wrong with that, or if it's not black and white wrong, and maybe it is, but is there a way around it, how close can I get to something that you said is wrong without actually doing something wrong? Now, listen, you know, you could write a teenage devotion book, right? You know, with that title, How Close Can I Get to Sin Without Actually Sinning? People would love that. You'd become a millionaire. Maybe you should do that. Imagine posting that question online, right? Go on social media and ask that question, and Lord, you will get a lot of responses. Don't read them, but you'll get a lot. And if you've ever dieted, you ask a version of this question, don't you? Kind of like, how close can I get to the line between right and wrong without actually crossing it? 
That there's this line, I don't know where it is, but how close can I get there without actually doing something wrong? But here's the thing. If you've ever asked that question, you know where that question leads you as well. How far over the line between right and wrong can I go without experiencing the consequences? See how it goes? Well, is there something wrong with that? Because really the question is, how close can I get to that? And the, really the question is, how far across it can I go without actually feeling the consequences? It's a snowball effect, isn't it? What if I told you there was a better question to ask? Perhaps the best question ever that has the potential and power to change your decisions, alter your future, and eliminate your regrets and instill hope. See, God never intended us to live on the edge of life, teetering over what defines legality and sinfulness, asking what's acceptable or inconsequential uh, before living vicariously through whatever watered-down version of sin we can possibly enjoy. Eventually, that leads to us jumping into the deep end of sin. Paul is corresponding with a people just like us that often forgot just what they had been saved for and who they had been saved by. Over time, our message to the world becomes we're just trying to game the system to somehow evade and escape judgment. The world sees through that in a minute and they don't want anything to do with it because they see what we're experiencing. We're not actually any different, any better for our faith. We're just weirder and more paranoid. And we pretend we're better, but we're actually not. We become superstitious and religious about surface-level things, but never see any true change. And if this is the version of Christianity you're communicating to the world, they don't want it, and they don't need it. And thankfully, God has a better approach for us, a more mature, positive, and practical approach that I think will align our hearts with the gospel closer. That instead of asking, am I against this? Maybe we should start asking, is this for me? that even if there isn't a verse that says this is wrong, is this for me? Is there some outcome that this is going to benefit me or be positive for me? Is there some way in taking part of this or doing this or going there, is this going to be for me as God intends to be for me? See, verse 15, I think that's what Paul is trying to say. Walk as a wise person. What is the wise thing for me to do? What is the best thing for me? And listen, I'm going to give you permission to actually stop doing something that may sound sacrilegious. Quit looking for a verse that clearly knocks down or props up an impending choice because it's not because there isn't truth. There's plenty of truth. It's that often we're looking through a lens and we won't find the verse. We'll just find something that gives us a loophole. And that doesn't make us any better. If Christianity is presented to the world as a process of gamesmanship where we just skirt the lines and find more subtle ways to sin, then that's an awful insult to Jesus. I think if we started living from the approach, what is the wise thing for me to do? We will free ourselves from constantly drifting towards doing as much wrong as I can without making God mad. First off, we've already learned God isn't mad at you. And He's not going to get mad at you. He's for you. And if you're living from a place, I've got to do whatever I've got to do to keep the guy upstairs happy, that's not living, okay? And that's definitely not eternal living. Jesus' death and resurrection satisfied God's wrath. Verse 2 says that that is the pleasing aroma to God. Jesus pleases God for us, and in Him we will please God all the more. 
His death frees us from constantly asking a question, can I get by with this? Can I get away with this? To, prom- to prompting a better question. Questions that reflect a God who is for us and not against us. Is God in this? Because if God is in this, then it'll be for me because God is for me. See, God's will and God's Word are for us, not against us. Which is why we should ask the question, is this, whatever it is, is this for me? It forces the conversation to shift in tone and in message. All under the banner, is this for me? Because God is for me and God wouldn't be for anything that is not for me. So I want to make sure this is for me. So the Corinthians had the opposite problem. They thought because they were saved by grace, they could sin as much as they wanted to, and God would always forgive them. And Paul wrote to them and said, All things may be lawful, but not all things are helpful. Not all things are for you. And he told them that you should live by this idea, that whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. And if you cannot do it to the glory of God, don't do it. I refuse to get into debates about are we anti this or are we anti that, because my purpose... Our purpose is to promote Jesus, and Jesus is here to promote you as in do what's best for you and give you what's best for you. He is for you. See, this communicates our faith in a better light, but it also bypasses the notion that our brains hate being told no. This is about being told yes because God wants to liberate you to say yes to His will. Now, before we leave, I'm going to give you... A couple questions to ask yourself that will launch you into God's best in as many circumstances and scenarios as I can cover. Considering where we've been, who we are, and where we want to be one day, and a God who is for you has all of that covered, showing you what is the wise thing for you to do. So when you're confronted by something, in light of my past experience, is this for me? In light of what I've been through, what I, my unique history is, Considering what I've been through, what I've been exposed to, what I've struggled with, they might can, he might be able to, but in light of your past experiences, is this good for you or is it against you? In light of my current circumstances, in light of where you are right now with your finances, your marriage, your family, your job, is this a smart thing for you to get yourselves into? It may change year to year, but it's important that we ask this question daily. Is this for me, or is it going to be against me? And finally, in light of my future hopes and dreams, is this for me? What's the story that you want to be able to tell when you're older? What's the story you want to be able to tell to your kid, your grandkids, your future husband or wife, employees, your church family? Consider your eternity, is this for you or is this going to be against you what story are you currently telling through your life your walk your actions and your decisions that's what this entire vision casting has been about about drafting the narrative that we want to look back at a year from now and say we were faithful we were for Lincoln and we were for risen and we were for us Because God is for Lincoln God is for risen and God is for us so we ought to be as well the wise thing for us to do is to make best use of our time and opportunity because it, it's a once-in-a-lifetime chance that we would present Jesus to the world 
participate in His church, and demonstrate His will. May we make the most of every good opportunity before the wrong opportunity makes the most of us. And I really think launching from this question, is this for me, has the potential to change our direction, our impact on our community and our contribution to our church. In light of my past, my current, and my future hopes and dreams, is this for me? See, in light of my past, in light of my present, in light of my future, when I consider my drift to sin, when I look around at my purpose, when I look forward to my potential, and I ask the question, what is for me? It drives me to lean into God's yes for me and say yes to Him. Because God chose me. God chose all of you. So why would I say no to him and to his will? Think about this. Jesus was not obligated to die on the cross. It wouldn't have been wrong for him to check out. He had legions of angels that were ready to come at his beck and call. And the scripture tells us that scarcely would one die for a righteous person. Perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God commended his love God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners Christ died for us he did what was for us so that we can trust him when he says consider this or consider that because he is for us and he's for everyone else too I know what is right I know what is for us right now which is to worship Jesus lay our lives down and say to him here is our heart he would speak into our heart, not just today, but going forward to press this vision of four on our hearts and on our souls that we could present boldly, participate passionately, and demonstrate and model our faith with faithfulness and with truth. Let me pray for you. Father, I love you and I'm thankful for this opportunity to cast this vision over your people. What I know today was a little more personal, a little more in our own business and confronting our own scenarios. But Lord, this is important that we consider the choices that we make and the decisions that we make and the path that we walk down. And Lord, may every decision that we make, may every choice that we make be impacted and be influenced by this question, is it for me? Because God, if you are for us, who are we to make a decision that is against us that would be to our undoing? God, thank you for your word for every verse, every chapter, every passage, cover to cover, everything that you have to say to us is for us and is good for us. Father, I pray that we would do a good job at communicating and demonstrating and modeling our faith to the world around us, Lord, that we might would show the world that there is a God who is for them and there is a God who is for us. And we live every single day with this question over our mind, is this for me? And if it's not for me, I don't want anything to do with it because I want to model to the world that I have chosen to say yes to God because God has said yes to me. Father, we thank you and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.